0: I was thinking as I was getting ready for this, this is the first time some of you guys have seen me without a sling, and praise the Lord for that. It's been six weeks, and the first week was uh, yeah, praise the Lord, I got a good <laughs> I got a good doctor. I had a good doctor, but the Lord is a master physician. He's healing me up, so thank you, Lord. Um, that was as a result of what I used to do down on campus, some I used to play football, and before that um, before I came to college and played football, I grew up on a ranch in the mountains. I know some of you guys know that, but probably a lot of you don't. I grew up on a ranch, and I was around beer a lot, booze, alcohol all the time. Now, neither one of my parents were heavy drinkers. But being on a ranch, that's how it was. I was just always around beer. Matter of fact, first beer I had was when I was about six or seven. I was cooking Rocky Mountain oysters, and I was pouring the beer on it. I thought, why not? Because I'm thirsty, and everybody else is doing it. So I was exposed to beer at an early age. Born and raised tough, right? Well, not really, but I thought so. Um, I never mess around with alcohol much in my early days, especially in high school. Um, why? No, not because I wanted to be obedient to the Lord and serve Him, not because I didn't want to get drunk or because I was underage, but because I love sports a lot. I mean a lot. And if I knew I knew if I got caught drinking alcohol that I wasn't going to be able to play football, that I wasn't going to be able to play basketball, and that I wasn't going to be able to do track. And so that kept me, at least for the most part, away from the booze. But that all changed when I got to college, as some of you know. In fact, before I even got moved in my first night into the dorms, I got so hammered drunk that I couldn't even find my dorm. I was lost in the parking lot, and I didn't know whether it was north, south, east, or west. I was lost. Couldn't find it. And that began a habit in my life for, oh, a year and a half. In fact, I remembered waking up and being so miserable that I would take all the beer out of my fridge and I would crack them open and I would pour them down the sink. I'd just, one after another, just just crack them open, pour them down. For about a month, I wouldn't drink, and I'd go and refill my fridge again. Now, you don't need to know all the details, and that's certainly not stuff that I'm proud of, but that's a reality. Um, Some of you were there, puking beside me, weren't you? Some of you in this room were there partying with me. But God saved you out of it, didn't He? I know some of you guys were there with me. But God saved you out of it. And some of you guys in this room are still stuck in it. Matter of fact, if the Lord hadn't put you sovereignly in this place tonight, you might be doing that instead. And maybe some of you will still do it tomorrow night. Maybe some of you did it last night. Praise the Lord that He saved us out of that. Some others are still trapped in it. And you think, Tanner, ought to not be so harsh and so dogmatic about alcohol. Well, it's not about alcohol I'm necessarily talking about. It's about drunkenness. It's about drunkenness. But Jesus liked wine and beer and alcohol, right? That was His first miracle. At least that's what I always hear. In fact, what comes to mind when we think of Jesus turning water into wine? Is that not what you've heard over and over and over and over again? Well... What's wrong with drinking? Jesus turned water into wine, Tanner. Come on, get real. Get real. Do I have an ax to grind here? No, not really. Not really at all. In fact, I don't look down on people who drink in a way that I feel like is responsible and honors the Lord. This was Jesus' first miracle. Did you know that? But if you use this passage to justify your use with alcohol, there's a couple huge, huge, huge errors with that. Two of them really, that I see. One, is that the wine that he drank here and the wine that they made here wasn't the same wine that we talk about today. They didn't have Brita water purification system, and so lots of times they put water in with the wine because it would help settle their stomach and and it would help purify the water. The alcohol would kill some of the contaminants in it. In fact, many commentators believe that the wine that Jesus made here wasn't even wine, it was grape juice because he says, this is the best wine or this is good wine. Now, I wouldn't go that far. I don't think that way at all. It may be true. I may be out of line there, but I don't think that's what's going on. But in any case, the wine in those days was mixed anywhere from 1 to 3 to 1 in 20, versus is what we have now. 1 to 3 to 1 in 20. So that means if it's 1 to 3 at its most, it had alcohol percentage of between 2 and a quarter percent and 2 and 3 quarter percent, 2.75. Now, today... What does a beverage have to be to be classified as alcoholic? Anybody know, percentage-wise? 3.2%. Now, do I have an extra grind here? No, I mentioned I don't. But if you think that's what's going on here, you're missing it. That's the first big reason. I know many godly men who are careful with their witness, who do this in a way that is careful. They sit down and they can, they can do this in a way that honors the Lord. But please, Christians, especially my age and your age, stop bringing the six-pack to the Christian party just because you can. Just because you want to exercise your liberty. You go marching in just so people notice you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others have no idea. Now I know that I'm opening up a can of controversial worms that are crawling up and down your back right now. And you're wondering, where are you going with this, Danner. Let me ask you to not sacrifice one of the few areas in our culture that you can look very different from the rest of the world. Very, very different. Let me also ask you not to take it the other way and say that Scripture forbids alcohol, because that's indeed not what it says at all, is it? Scripture's strong against drunkenness. In fact, several places, including in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that those... Who engage in drunkenness will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they're living in a constant sin, which is what I was doing. So stop looking, friends and brothers and sisters, those of you who've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ with disgust and distaste on those who do. Because what separates you from those who do? The grace of God. You see, it would have been you right next to me puking your guts out. But by the grace of God... By the grace of God. That's what separates you. This lesson is not about alcohol. That would be the mistake that you would make if you would use this and think of this lesson in light of alcohol. I want to get that out of the way. I want you to see. Because I'm very serious about that. Again, do I mind if you do this in a responsible way that will honor the Lord? No. But quit fooling around and using your liberty for license in the Christian walk. Two. Here's the second problem, and this is way, way, way more important than the first way, the first problem. The second and more, even stronger misconception is if you focus on the alcohol and the party in this passage, you miss the big picture, the bigger picture, the biggest picture, and that's Jesus Christ. In fact, if you focus in and you hone in on that and that's all you get out of this, then you miss everything, at least almost everything. I hope we can look past our cultural and social perceptions here and see that Christ is the grand subject of this passage, as with almost every passage in John. Christ is the grand subject, and our good, its design. Drinking and cultural pragmatism and theology at pubs can't be justified with this passage, or I would argue any passage. But we do learn from this, something about Jesus and how He regarded those things. I think it's a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing, that Christ chose to do His first miracle at a marriage. That's a really, really special thing. That He would set His approval on this wedding feast. That's a beautiful thing. So there's two things. Guys, if you'd focus on that tonight, you miss it. Focus on alcohol. You miss the big picture. And the big picture is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb who is slain. So focus on Him as we go through this. If you have a Bible, grab it. Grab it and open it up to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And go to chapter 2. John, chapter 2, verse 1. I'll start reading there. Follow along with me if you would. If you don't have a Bible, look with the person next to you, please. I want you guys to see this. I want you to know it, and I want you to believe it. I want you to see it. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan and Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up. And he said to them, Now draw some some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first sign Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested His glory in His disciples. Believed in Him. I'm praying ask the Lord to help us with this. Oh, Lord, thank You so much. Thank You. Thank You for a chance to worship. Water, You turned into wine. You've opened the eyes of the blind. There's no one like You, Lord. Father, help Your children tonight. Lord, help me. God, I beg that You'd help me. Father, help me with this passage. Lord, fill me with Your Spirit, weight and power. In the words, Father, I would pray, help me now. God, and help Your children to grow from this passage. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. And Lord, the sons of the world, the people who are not Yours tonight, Lord, open their eyes like You did with the blind man. Father, cause them to see and to know and to believe. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for tonight. We count it such a privilege. Lord, such a privilege to be able to worship you. What a joy, Father. What a what a special honor. What a special thing, Father. Help your children now. In Jesus' name. Amen. John two, one through twelve. Want you to notice three things as we go through this. Jesus does what he wants, and he does it when he wants. Jesus does what he wants and he does it when he wants. Exactly what he wants and exactly when He wants. But two, His wants are always perfectly in accord with what God wants, His Father wants. So He is always in perfect obedience to what His Father says. And three, that God can be glorified in every single circumstance, in every single situation. Watch for those things as we go through this. Watch for those things. Verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. He'd just spent four days in uh, Perea near John the Baptist. He'd just spent four days and he'd collected a couple more disciples. In fact, there was only five disciples with him right now. Fifth day, he left for his home in Nazareth. He traveled up to Nazareth from his time with John the Baptist, which was... Uh, and then on the sixth day, excuse me, he arrived there and he was invited to a wedding once he got back to Nazareth, back to his hometown. And the seventh day... He traveled up to Cana, where we are now, which is seven miles north of Nazareth. So this is the third day after Nathanael and Philip. This is the third day after he gets Nathanael and Philip. Just to fill you guys in, this is what's going on. Early ministry of Jesus. There's five disciples with him at this point. Isn't it interesting that John records this and he says, the mother of Jesus was there. Who was the mother of Jesus? What was her name? Why does he not use her name? Why does he say the mother of Jesus? I would suggest that it's a better name for Mary than Mary. Because I bet Mary would rather rightly be called the mother of Jesus. That's a far better name. It focuses more on Christ. And that's what John always calls her through this gospel. Never once does he call her Mary. But he says the mother of Jesus. In fact, if you think about it, as I thought about it, which would I rather be called, Tanner or a disciple of Christ? easily a disciple of Christ, right? Because then I am tied to Christ, I am associated with Christ. Mary, Mary, there's lots of Marys, but there's only one mother of Jesus. This is the mother of Jesus. Verse 2, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. We don't know exactly what this looks like, but sometime on the fifth day, before they came up to Cana, the whole... Um, Jesus and his five disciples were invited up there. What's this look like? Did they get to save the date in the mail? No, but somebody walked up to him and said, "Jesus, your disciples are invited to this wedding." And verse one and verse three suggest that somehow Mary held a position of responsibility in this wedding. In fact, a lot of commentators say that Jesus and Mary might have been akin to those people that were getting married. I think it's interesting that Jesus accepts, don't you? It says, true religion was never meant to make men melancholy or sad or, or distraught. On the contrary, it was intended to increase joy and the happiness among men. That's J.C. Ryle. Let me read to you something else. J.C. Ryle says again, we learn secondly from these verses. There are times when it is lawful to be merry and rejoice. Our Lord himself sanctioned a wedding feast by his own presence. He did not refuse to be a guest at a marriage In Cana of Galilee, a feast. And it is written in Ecclesiastes 10.19, It is made for laughter, and wine makes merry. I think it's really neat that Jesus went to this. Jesus had a ton going on. In fact, He was only going to be in ministry for about three years. He didn't have to go to a wedding. But He sanctioned this wedding by Him coming. He made it a priority. Marriage was a big deal in those days. Most of you guys know that. In fact, some people, the Jews, even believed that Marriage was so holy that it even erased sin. It was a big, big deal. So Jesus going there and sanctioning this was a big deal. Now is Jesus saying, this forgives sin? No. It's interesting at this wedding, there's nothing new under the sun is there. The wine ran out. Because there's wine expected to be at a wedding. Verse 3, the wine ran out and the mother of Jesus, there it is again, not Mary, but the mother of Jesus said, they have no wine. Why was Mary worried about this? Probably because she, again, held a a role of responsibility. But the wine ran out and wine was expected. She turns to Jesus, probably like she's done lots of times because she's been with Him or around Him for 30 years and she says, Jesus, something's wrong. I bet she's done this so many times. I bet she's done this so many times. I don't know. I wouldn't say that she's even expecting a miracle, but she's looking to Jesus and she says, Jesus, the wine's out. What are we going to do? Jesus has probably had a lot of answers in his time. Jesus did miracles in obedience to his Father and in obedience to his Father only. At appointed times, and they were to authenticate his teaching or his doctrine. Because he had not begun his teaching up to this point, he didn't need miracles. He didn't need to perform them because he wasn't teaching yet. He was studying. He was submitting to his father and mother. He was growing in favor with the Lord. In fact... If you look back to what I taught on a few weeks ago when Jesus was in the desert, how radical of a contrast is that and this? Jesus fasts for 40 days and Satan tells him, turn that stone into bread, I bet you're starving. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. You think Jesus couldn't do it? I doubt it. He just turned water into wine or he's about to. And Jesus said to her, woman... What does this have to do with us? And depending on your translation, they say different things there. I'm reading on the Nazareth. Woman, what does, it have, what does this have to do with us? This is a difficult phrase to translate. And what does it mean? And he says, my hour is not yet come. What do we have to do with what, Jesus? The wine? No. What was Jesus doing here? He was drawing, this is so important, he was drawing a separation between his mother and him. The mother of Jesus and Jesus Christ. Listen, the time had come not for Mary to govern her son anymore, to give him orders for her to for him to submit to her, but now for her to submit to him as Messiah and Christ and Lord. See, there's a huge change here, Mary, or woman, excuse me, woman. What does this have to do with us? Not a harsh rebuke. In fact, when we see woman, what do you think? Woman. But that's not what Jesus was saying. It is what he said. But some of your tra- some of your versions tra- translate this as "dear woman," or man. the English equivalent might even be "ma'am." Now, it wasn't Jesus wasn't just saying it softly? It was still a separation. He was still drawing something here, but he was to be about his father's business, not Joseph, but God. Luke two forty nine, and he said to them. Why were you looking for me? Jesus and er, Mary and Joseph go back and they look for him and Jesus says, Why were you looking for me? Do you not know I must be in my father's house? Jesus is about his father's business. And he's never been more about his father's business than right now. Again, the word woman isn't a derogatory word. In fact, I remember as I was sitting in a high school youth group once, this guy I know, tremendous guy, a lot of you guys know him. Um, I don't think you'd mind me telling this story. His name's Graham Nicholson. And his wife was sitting His wife, Karen, wonderful, wonderful lady. And she was sitting there, front row, and he says, Woman, would you give me a glass of water? And I kind of, where am I want you to do that? thought you guys had a great marriage, and now you're fighting. <laughs> but that's not what was going on. And I think Graham could tell by the way we all reacted to it that he meant something different. He meant woman, my wife, my dear wife. Jesus isn't sending a harsh rebuke in Mary's way, but He is drawing a separation. Don't miss that. That's super important. Now, the theme verse for this year is 1 John 2.6. If we say that we abide in Him, we must walk in the same manner that Jesus walked. But don't do this at home, please. In fact, it really, really bothers me. I want to slap somebody around when they call their mom by their first name. You call your mom, Mom, because that's what she is. Don't practice this at home. We're to walk like He walked but not in calling our mother woman. (laughs) Then, Mary obviously wasn't too discouraged by this. She turns to the servants and he says, whatever he says, do it. Now she must have, again, some form of command or responsibility in this. Turns to the servants and says, whatever he does, do it. What an overarching good statement for all Christians, right? I mean, some of you guys ought to get this tattooed on your arm or something. <laughs> Whatever Jesus says, do it. Do it. Perhaps the dullness of Jesus growing up with Mary over 30 years had begun to confuse Mary or something. In fact, he hadn't done any miracles. I mean, surely she didn't forget this miraculous birth, this virgin birth of Jesus. But 30 years of practically nothing Jesus studying, being obedient. Of course, the perfect child, but what's going on here? Mary's starting to get excited. In fact, this is emphatic in the Greek. There should be an exclamation mark. Whatever he says, do it! She says to the servants. The language indicates, again, exclamation. Now, there were six stone water pots set for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 to 30 gallons each. This is a lot. Jewish custom of purification. Anybody know anything about the Jews? Pretty engulfed in the law, then and even now. Now they're kind of all over the map, but serious about the law, serious about purification. The largest and most elaborate Jewish book, the Mishnah, is divided into 30, it has over 30 chapters, but 30 of those chapters are devoted to this. To purification with water in those stone water pots. This is a serious deal. I mean, this... Isn't a little thing. These guys were eating food and wine and they had to have 20, 30 gallons, 6, 120 to 150 gallons of water there for purification. Jesus said to them, fill those pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Now I need a volunteer. Somebody volunteer for me. Somebody I don't know. It has to be something I don't know. Somebody I don't know. Or don't remember. (laughs) Anybody? Man, I'm not. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not. Even, you don't even have to talk. Yeah, please come here. Appreciate it. I just. I want to give you. A, go fill that with water. Would you? There's a sink right back there. <laughs> Twenty to thirty gallons. Now just fill it uh, halfway with water. I know he says all the way to the top. It's a big thing, and that's a slow faucet. Just fill it a little ways. <laughs> Fill the water pots with water, so they filled them to the brim. Notice that they obeyed exactly, just like Mary told them. Sometimes, I tell you what, this is a sin of mine. I, yeah, I get so frustrated sometimes. When I ask someone to do something, they say, why? Why do that? Why should I do that? Or why don't you elaborate, explain that more. Now, I don't mind answering people's questions, but what happened when people, you asked people to do something? service and they just said yeah okay i'd love to you know what i mean sure you do you know exactly what i mean because it happens all the time that's great thank you yeah i'll need you just in a second again but that's good you can see what was your name again deanna leanna Leanna, thanks so much for your help obeyed exactly we are to obey exactly if someone asks us now if they ask us to do something that's immoral don't do it right but that's not what i'm talking about obeyed exactly. Then Jesus, uh, and then He says to them, draw some of the water and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to Him. They did exactly what Jesus says. Leanna, can I borrow you? Again, for just a second, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> they take it to the head waiter. So the head waiter, the one who's kind of in charge of the marriage, they take it to Him. If you just... Take some of that and pour it in here for me. Take some and say, take it to the head waiter. I just want to illustrate for you. Dump that in there. Oh, yeah. That's good, thanks. What kind of wire did you put in there? water. Yeah, just what. Now this is some cheesy trick, right? (laughs) I'm not trying to mock what Jesus is doing, but I do want you to see kind of how this happened. Takes it to the head waiter, Sam the head waiter, and he takes it to him. Draws some out. Takes it to the head waiter. Verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, did not know where it came from. Parentheses. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the head waiter called the bridegroom. Okay, so they pour the water. And I call the bridegroom... <laughs> yeah, you, have. Stand up. And I say... Verse 10, every man serves the good wine first, when the people, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, but you serve the good wine until now. Thanks, Ev. Sit down. just <laughs> so want you guys to see this. The servants obviously understood, right? Now, if I hadn't been describing this, here's the reason I did this, because if I hadn't walked you through this, what would you think she went and put in there? Kool-Aid, right? But she didn't. She put tap water in there. And no one knew at the feast what was going on. They just thought, okay, he's pouring some more wine. But who knew? The servants knew because they were the ones doing it. Now, isn't it interesting how Jesus went about this? Because if it was you or me, we would have gone, hey, everybody, I'm about to turn water into wine. Come, look, watch, listen. Everybody, look at how great I am. I'm going to turn water into wine. But Jesus doesn't do that, does He? Not at all. In fact, the only ones who know are the servants, and probably Mary, because she knows what's going on too. It's estimated that after Jesus fed the crowds, he had up to 20,000 people following Him around. 20,000 people following Him around. Can you even imagine? We pack almost 19 in the stadium on game days. All those people fall on one person or one person. And yet Jesus is so selective in his ministry. Why does he do this? He wants the servants to see. Humble. Every man serves the good wine first. See, he thought the bridegroom was the kind of exception. He thought this was the bridegroom doing it, but it wasn't. Now verse 11. This began his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was Jesus' first attesting miracle which points to the supernatural power of God and authenticates all that he does. This shows God's redeeming grace in the future and Jesus manifests his glory in obedience to the Father. He is authenticating what he does. This is one of the eight things that John gives us. The first of eight that says Jesus is God. Jesus didn't do this to keep the party going. Now, that was the natural result of this. They had more wine. But Jesus did this to manifest His glory. That's what verse 11 tells us. The result? What happened? The disciples believed. I didn't go back far enough, but chapter 1 says the disciples believed. What does that mean? They've already believed. Why are they believing again? Well, the verb tense here indicates that their faith increased because of this. He would already called the five. And when they did this, when Jesus did this, the disciples knew and they saw and they found out and what was the result? The same result that should happen for you. They believed and their faith increased and it grew. They would already believed in chapter 37. Excuse me. (laughs) Chapter 1, I think it's verse 37. If you're not in John, go there again. But flip over to chapter... Uh, four verses forty-six through forty-eight, chapter four, verses forty-six through forty-eight. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, same place he is here, where he had made the water into wine. Obviously, at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was to the point of death. So Jesus said to him, So Jesus said to him, Listen, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now there are some people who believed without signs and wonders, but it was few and far in between. And what do these people want? Just give me some more. Just give me some more. Just give me some more faith. Just give me some more truth. just give me another reason to believe. And how often do your people say this? And how often have you said this? Jesus, if you'd just come and walk on the water, I'd believe. But Jesus has given us enough. All they wanted was more truth. Or excuse me, more miracles. Jesus had given them enough miracles, he'd given them enough truth. Over and over and over again. John says at the end of this, if, if I recorded, I suppose if I recorded everything that Jesus had done, that the whole world would not be able to hold the, the volumes of books that would accumulate from all this. Jesus did so much. And I don't even think this was a rare thing. Praise the Lord that John records this for us. But I don't think verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 is all that rare. But it's really special to us because the Holy Spirit inspired John to give it to us. Why did John write the Gospel of John? This is important. Why are we studying this tonight? Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That's why John wrote this. And that's why... You're sitting here tonight and listening to these words that you might believe and have life in His name. And if you believed, your faith would increase. And if you haven't believed, you would believe and be redeemed. There's only two places you're in tonight. Either you're a lost sinner abiding under God's wrath and you need to believe in Jesus Christ or you've already believed, in which case, I believe, Father, help me believe. Give me more faith. That should be your prayer. One of the things I want you to observe here is how he took the most menial circumstances and used it for his glory. What I hear most often out of college-age students and, students and myself, I could relate to it when I was going to college. I just wish I had more time for ministry. I wish I had more time to serve the Lord. I used to say this all the time, God, I don't want to go to class. Class is a waste of time. I just want to serve you. So what, should, what are we supposed to do? What's our example? Turn water into wine? No. Not some cheap food coloring trick. Right? But what do we do? We tell people about how Jesus turned water into wine. Why do you do this? So others may believe. You don't turn water into wine, but you can sure as heck tell somebody. And you tell them that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that they are morally and spiritually accountable to the King of the universe. That same Jesus that turned water into wine, you set an example for them in discipline. And respect and attitude and respect for your teachers, your peers, your work ethic. You show them Christ and you tell them Christ. St. Francis of Assisi once said, preach the gospel always, use words when necessary. And that is rubbish. That's stupid. Words are always necessary. Don't let me ever hear you say that. You go and you preach the gospel. How will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless you speak? You go and you speak and you let your actions show what you already are saying. your actions should govern and enforce what you're already saying. Paul said in First Thessalonians four, Our gospel did not come to you, excuse me, First Thessalonians one, Our gospel did not come to you in word only but in power and in full conviction under the power of the Holy Spirit. This wasn't just a gospel of words like we throw around, but this was a gospel that came with power, with force. why? Partly because it was reinforced by the way that Paul lived. Is your gospel reinforced by the way that you live, or is it distracted from the way you live? Can you say someone can you say to someone, Jesus Christ lived and died and bore the sins of man, and he called you to repent and believe? And can they look at your lifestyle and say, Yeah, she believes that. Yeah, he believes that. Am I calling you to spotless perfection? No, because that's not what Jesus called, but your your life better authenticate the message that you preach. Forget this, St. Fran. I'm sure the man was a a man who did a lot for the Lord, but that quote, if I hear it one more time, I'm going to I quiver when I hear that. (laughs) Do not say that. Preach the gospel always. Testify Christ verbally, socially, morally, everywhere you go. Trust that God has you in the right time in the right place, and in the right class for a reason. Like Paul, learn to be content in every circumstance and serve him there. When I'm working here, sometimes I'd sit down in the office and I think, I've got to get out. I've got to go, got to go tell some people. I've got to go, man, i I just got to go. And then when I'm out there, I think, man, I've got to be in the office. I should be working on this lesson. So come Friday, I can honor God and I can honor His children with His Word. And I go back and forth in this dilemma. God, I should be in the office. God, I should be out. But guess what? You get to be out a lot. A lot more than me. In fact, you're out on campus. Whether you're at MBC, MSU, or in the job, force a lot. You're doing life. And hopefully you're doing ministry and serving the Lord that way. You know what it was written. Go and tell somebody about it. Two, two. This story is not about being relevant in our culture somehow. Yes, go, have fun, celebrate, let them see the joy that is in you, the joy, joy, joy. True religion doesn't make men melancholy. It makes them happy. It doesn't make them sad. It makes them... Now, there's a time for mourning. Don't get me wrong, but... Some you, I see people walk around, true believers with this grim look on their face, like the grim reapers following them around i have the joy in your life. I understand there's difficult things. I do. I get that. And I'm not expecting you to put on some fake face when things are going rough. Not at all. But I am saying, let them see that there's something different in you. This is about Jesus showing Himself off as Messiah. He freely mingles with humanity. And when He's even at a wedding, and even when you're at campus, he can be talking to people, telling them. Isn't it interesting that he took these, these stone water pots that were used for the laws of purification by the Jews, each holding 20 to 30 gallons each, six of them. And he used them, the law, the things that the Jewish were so fixed on, and he turned them into wine, which today we celebrate in the Lord's Supper and it represents His blood that He shed on the cross. I don't want to read into this too far, but I find that to be a pretty neat thing as I was thinking about this as I was reading about it. I just, In fact, I was just thinking about that today, and I wrote it down because I think it's profound. The law, and now we have the blood. What's Hebrews 9.22 say? The second half, "...for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins." What's Jesus say in Matthew 26-28? He's sitting around the table with His disciples and He says, This is My blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sins. And how do we remember that today? With wine. Are you washed in the water or are you washed in the blood too? Don't get lost in the what in this passage. Get lost in the who. This passage is about Jesus Christ. What's a sign to It points to somebody else. This was a sign and a testing miracle. And it's not the sign in itself that you look at. It points where you want to go. It points to Christ. Too often, fellas, ladies, we bargain with God. Just like the Galileans in chapter 4, verse 46. Lord, just some more miracles. Lord, just let me use you for a rabbit's foot. Lord, just heal this disease and I'll believe in you. Stop bargaining with God and begin bowing to Him. I beg you, and He does, submit to the Lord. Just help me with this test. Just give me a miracle. What do you say to the Pharisees? A wicked and perverse generation seeks after a sign. A sign will not give. Trust in the Lord. Look at His Word. He has given us enough, and He is enough. You want to know a greater miracle than turning water into wine? that God could take a wretch like me and make me into a new creation. He could take a blind man and make him see spiritually that he could take a wretch like you and you and you and you if you've been redeemed and make you into a new creation. For if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. You are dead in your natural state and some of you sit in this room dead tonight dead in your trespasses and sins, and the wrath of God abides on you. And you sit dead, and there's only one who can make you alive. Let me tell you something. God is still manifesting His glory, and He is still doing miracles. He's using the sun and the earth and photosynthesis, and He's still making grapes. They're still being made into wine. And you go outside, especially in Bozeman, and you'll know Why Paul says what he does in Romans 1.20, that God has revealed himself, his divine attributes, his invisible qualities in nature, so that man is without excuse. Listen, none of you in this room have an excuse tonight. God has revealed himself. He has made himself clear both through this miracle and and throughout the Gospels, throughout the Bible. And if that's not enough, go outside and you look at the mountains and God says, I've made myself manifest. You, my friend, are without excuse. It's only appropriate, isn't it, that God would start His public ministry, that Jesus would start His public ministry in a marriage feast. And that He would consecrate it, that He would end it again with a marriage feast in Revelation. Will you be invited to the true marriage feast, the marriage feast that will exist in heaven with the bride, a you being the bride of Christ and He inviting you in? It says, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are, the words of, these are the true words of God. There will be another marriage supper. Will you be invited? Will you commune with the one and only God that created the universe? What will you do with this one called the Christ? Will you be like the Galileans who say, give me more, Lord, just give me some more. I just, I just need a miracle, Lord, just... Just do this and I'll believe. Or will you see, will you read, will you look and see that He has made Himself clear enough and you don't know when your time will come? Or will you be like Peter who threw himself at the feet of Christ and said, away from me, Lord, for I am a wicked man. Will you throw yourself at the feet of God tonight and beg for His mercy? And if you do, I trust that He will provide it to you. What will you do with this one called the Christ? The question is not, did you believe? Or at some point, have you believed? Foolishness. The question is, do you believe? Are you believing? Are you in a state of belief? Are you trusting Christ? Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. John said it pretty well. I've got nothing else. If you really want to see a miracle tonight, get down on your knees and beg for mercy from God on high and He'll provide it through His Son, Jesus Christ, and His blood. Repent and believe and watch God make you into a new creation. That, my friends, that, my brothers and my sisters, is a real miracle of God. Let's pray. The Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to shed His blood for many for their remission of sins. Lord, some You've saved here tonight. Perhaps some You have not. Lord, open their eyes. Cause them to see. Make them to repent and believe. Lord, make them to believe again and again and again that they may believe and believe more. Father, I pray for my brothers and my sisters in here who do know you. Lord, increase their faith. What a blessed thing it is to be sealed in the Spirit and to be counted as a precious Son of God. What a thing. Lord, would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them? Would you build them up in the faith? Lord, would you cause them to be a witness down at MSU, at MBC, in the job field, in the workplace, wherever. Father, make these things set in. Make us repent and believe. Father, hear your children's prayers. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father. To you be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen.